I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I'm hosting my guest today all the way from Australia. Steve Bidolf is one of the world's best-known parent educators. A psychologist for 30 years, he is now retired but continues to write and teach. His books, including The Secret of Happy Children, Raising Boys, The New Manhood, and The 10 Things Girls Need Most, are in the four million copies sold. I think Raising Boys Alone, which was really definitive in Steve's work uh, on men's psychology and how to raise boys, has been translated to more than 31 languages and sold more than 3 million copies. Those books have influenced the way we look at childhood and especially the development of boys to men and girls to women that we can all be proud of. Steve was voted Australian Father of the Year for the year 2001 for his work encouraging dads. And he is a member of the Order of Australia for his work in young people's mental health. He has two grown-up children and lives in Tasmania with his wife and co-author, Sharon. I intend to spend as much time as I can to bring as much of Steve's wisdom and advice to you. Uh, If you're a parent or an expecting parent, that's wonderful, but also maybe just to reflect back on how you were raised as a child and see how you became what you are today. So let's begin our conversation with Steve Bedorf. Thank you so much, by the way, for joining me. And as we were saying before we started recording, I've been very looking forward to this conversation, not just because your work is incredible on it, but because the topic itself can really set the human race right. If we manage to raise our children better, if we were raised better, me personally, we could have made a massive difference to my life, right? Me too, yes, for sure. (laughs) You were asking about our childhoods. And I think when I look at what my mum and dad came through and probably yours as well, most people in the 20th century, the 20th century was a nightmare for (laughs) most families and a a nightmare for families, whichever country you were in. And it was a world in turmoil and, and, and war. And so they did a damn good job, really, considering what they'd experienced. So I, I can only feel admiration for them, but still they passed on quite a lot of wounds to us and our job is to heal those wounds and we'll still pass some on to our children. But I'm hopeful the human race will lift itself out of that as quickly as we can. Do you think that, that actually this, the traumas of the early 20th century are what affected humanity at large? I mean, did we raise children better before World War I, World War II, Great Depression, all of that? Um, in Papua New Guinea, the parenting there was very similar to what we would now advocate of being very affectionate with children 
and giving them a lot of nature, of course, immersed in nature. And the stresses were just the stresses of the real world of cold winds and rain and, and wild animals. And so I think we've struggled for many centuries. What the 20th century especially did in, in my field of work, which was men's psychology, was that it really hammered the men. They were often soldiers and they were came home from those wars and those relocations and also from the industrialization of the world and the great flows of populations across to different countries. The women seemed to go pretty well with that, but the men were emotionally battered. And if you looked at World War I and then World War II coming so soon afterwards, the trauma was never healed, it was never addressed. And so we had a, a generation of men who were just hammered by one hammer blow after another. And so you and I would be in the same generation, Mo, at a guess, and our fathers were the most hammered, I think, in history. And so we were the most underfathered generation that it was ever raised, because if they were even there, so often they just weren't there, but if they were there physically, often they were emotionally not there and they were shut down and and so we didn't have that kind of male sweetness and male engagement to show us the inner world of being male and so i think that there was a wound or i call it the father wound that was like a like a grand canyon running through our generation and what my books especially raising boys tried to do was to reconnect dads and their children and say to dads your kids really need you and you're not an assistant mum, you're a parent of a different <laughs> style. <laughs> I love the term assistant mum, actually, that's so interesting. It summarizes a big, big gap where men believe that boys are raised by their mom and I'm there to help, while what you're saying is the exact opposite. Yes. You're as primary and important as the mom. Absolutely. And at certain key times, both for boys and girls, but I have a very simple mind, Mo, and, and I have a, a map of this that's very simple where boys live very much in their mum's world for the first six years. And dads can be very hands-on, but relative to mum, they're like kind of light entertainment compared to mum. Mm -hmm. But from six to 14, the boys shift very notably towards their father's world. And they really want to follow dad around and they want to be like dad. And I say to the dads in my audiences, I say, when your son is six years old, you are the, the hero of the world to him. You know, you may have a very low estimation of yourself, but in your son's eyes, you're like, like God. To Superman, him. yeah. Superman. Yeah. And he will want to copy you and he'll want to please you and he'll want to be around you. And that'll go till about 14. And so don't waste that chance. You know, if you, if you think you've got some values you want to pass on and some things that you'd like your kids to take from you, they'll drink it in at that age. And so they'll still be close to their mum, but they'll be kind of looking at dad and putting him center stage in their own emotional world. And so this helps a little bit when you're planning your career and when you're looking at your life choices to say, okay, from six to 14, I really need to be hands-on. And not in that kind of what the corporate world wants is for us to be like a walking wallet. That's not going to work. If you have a 50-hour week, when I wrote one of my other books, I, I was in a very gung-ho, I don't know if that's an expert, very kind of want to shake people up sort of mood. Um, and I said, if you work a 50-hour week as a dad, you will fail as a father 
because you just just doesn't leave enough for your children and i don't really know if that's true it's, it depends on a lot on individual situation but it stirred up a lot of men to look at themselves and women would say to me you really annoyed my husband but he's playing with the kids every weekend you know <laughs> it's reading to them every night and so sometimes guys respond to a bit of a a bit of a, a bit of a shake a confrontation yeah, yeah. I look back at the time when I was raising my wonderful son and my wonderful daughter. And I have to admit, I was actually writing about this as an introduction for my one of my next books, that there was that stage in life. I remember vividly when my son Ali was born, where before that I was this artist who wanted to be a carpenter and I really didn't care much about life and I just wanted to go through life. And then Ali was born and that was a pivotal moment because I remember vividly, I was in the operating room. I looked as the doctor raised him for the first time and I said, that's it. My life has been defined. I'm going to spend the rest of my life to make sure that this pruny, crumbly little creature is never going to need anything. I'm going to provide. And then I think the second pivotal point was when you know, I did well, I worked hard, I could provide for him, we'd put him in the best kindergarten that we could think of in our neighborhood. And then my daughter was one and a half years younger. And I remember vividly the turning point when I went to my manager and I said, I need an 11% raise by next year, because if I don't get that, I'm not going to be able to put Aya in the same school that Ali goes to. And that really matters to me. I think the moral of the story for me is that perhaps I was very blinded as a father by the idea of providing rather than the idea of of being there. And I think most of us get into that little corner. Do you, do you believe that this is true? What can we do about it? Yes, I, I do. Now, there was so much in what you just said, for example, that the experience of being at the birth and how much that changes you in, in seconds. I think that it it's a rite of passage or a, a kind of a transition to manhood. <laughs> that really we're we're still boys in our society and the experience of fatherhood if your heart is open enough is it just turbocharges you into to manhood but then those intense feelings of wanting things to be right for them and to take care of them how do you channel that and what the culture around us says is is that's money that's to do with money and that's how you feed them and house them and give them opportunities. And that's a tragic conclusion because all of the expensive schools of the world are filled with children, especially boys, who are underfathered. And they are at considerable risk of drug addiction, of getting in with the wrong crowd, mistreating women. A boy has 19 times the chances of going to prison than a girl does because girls get plenty of mum, but boys get so little of dad. And so... So interesting. Yeah. And, and if you talk to those dads, and that's, that's what my job is, I work with large audiences of mums and dads. And, and I felt this the same. When our little boy was born, we were living in a ramshackle farmhouse in the mountains in Tasmania. And, and I said to my wife, look, oh, no, you know, we, our house is no good. We've, we've got to renovate the kitchen. We've got to fix the bathroom. You know, we live in a dump, you know. And, and Sharon, who only comes up about to hear on me, so I remember she came right up to me and she grabbed me. She grabbed me by the lapels, if you can picture that, and sort of, you know, pulled my head down and said, listen to me. If you want to renovate the kitchen, that's fine by me, but don't do it for my sake. I'm perfectly happy 
with our kitchen. I'm perfectly happy with our bathroom and our house. And it kind of lifted that off me, Mo. It was like she was very wise and she just took away any sort of you've got to look after us kind of message. Because what I later learned when I studied a lot more of the neuroscience of babies is a baby doesn't care if it lives in a tin shed or a mansion. It doesn't know and it doesn't mind, but it is acutely aware of the emotional mood of the adults. Babies can react within a hundredth of a second to a facial expression on mum or their dad's face. So they know when we're stressed. And so if we make ourselves exhausted and we hardly have any time as a couple because we've gone into that kind of accelerated earning the school fees kind of fever, it's absolutely counterproductive. You know, in engineering terms, you, there must be a term for that, I'm sure, for when you do something which has the absolute opposite effect of what you intended. And so it's been the tragedy of certainly of Western culture that we we thought that it was about money and it turned out that parenthood was was about time and and we just went down the wrong road and and so on my website the banner across the front of my i've got the most ancient website in the world and it's across <laughs> the top it was put on a, a macintosh 512 or something um <laughs> it says hurry is the enemy of love and that of course we love our wives of course we love our children and our friends but when we're rushed loving is about a carefully negotiated meeting of people and it's sensitive and it takes even just coming home at nighttime to your family you kind of have to dock your sh properly and find the rhythm you know find the orbit and just join in with it and if you're rushed and you, your head is still off in a, a deal that you were making or an email that came in your kids feel like dad isn't really there he's looking at us he's nodding his head but he's not there they can tell that and so it's a very great challenge and I've keep meeting people who came to one of my talks and they didn't say anything at the time, but I meet them 10 years later and they said, after your talk, I left my career. I just realized because deep down, we always know these things. I just realized I was, we had a talk as a couple. We just were not living the life we had intended as a couple to be. We got caught up and because humans are a herd animal, and so we get our settings of what's pretty well all right from what everyone else is doing. And so if everyone's rushing, we almost feel we have to, you know, they've been across to Florida for their holidays. We kind of feel like, you know, we all really ought to do that as well. And I come in and with this very countercultural messages sometimes, and I say to people, don't take my word for anything. Your heart will know there'll be somewhere down inside you that it will just go, ah, you know, somewhere deep down, I knew I wasn't happy with our life. And I've just given voice to that. And so it's like, don't, don't believe me, believe your own heart. And sometimes that just seems to happen. People just kind of wake up. And even if it's like Daniel Petrie, who was head of Microsoft in, in the Pacific for a long time, is a friend of mine. He woke up to this and he woke up because his sister died in a car crash and it just woke him up overnight. And he, he went to Bill Gates and said, Bill, I want to go back and live in Australia and I want to raise my children in a quiet country, slow country. And that's, that's what he did. And when he set up Microsoft in Australia, he, he said, 
everybody goes home at five o'clock in this this company new culture nobody stays after five most of you are dads and mums and you should be kicking a ball with your kids after work and he's a, he's a wonderful man i look up to him enormously because he it's easy for me i'm a country psychologist in a little island in australia but he was in the, the very pinnacle like you were mo and he just said nobody who works in my company is going to be made to feel they have to put in long hours and he, he gave concrete examples he said in microsoft we had a rule if someone was going through a divorce there would be two years where we couldn't count on them they were just off the planet with the stress and the horrible time of that so let's not have our people divorce you know let's not be responsible for that let's make sure that <laughs> you know i mean there's some, sometimes people have to divorce of course but but let's not be the cause of that through our work practices Mm. Does that make sense to you, Mo? It sounds amazing. And I, I think, so I think everything that you say, I, I would want to take every second sentence and stop at it and focus for a minute. Because what you're saying mostly is almost the opposite of what our culture is. I mean, let me start from the very beginning. You, you were talking about our fathers and our grandfathers being battered much more than women. And I think I'm going to say something controversial here. There is a lot of talk in the world today about how women have been mistreated, whether, of course, through violence, through harassment, through inequality at work and so on and so forth, which I think are all absolutely valid examples. There is no denying this. But nobody ever talks about how men are battered and ignored, right? How men are raised in a way that basically says, don't cry don't have emotions, just carry the load, just run with it. You're a rock. It doesn't matter how your emotions are, just behave like a rock. I mean, I, I have listed down from our just, you know, 15 minutes conversation, so many of those cultural discrepancies, if you want, that you're bringing up. I mean, how about this? Men have been raised wrong. In my view, I think I am as emotional, if not more emotional than most of my lady friends, right? Why is that not allowed to be shown in our modern world? Yes, well, it's it's being shown more and more, and I think that you're right. The kind of the, the patriarchal structure that was so strong in the world was mutilating the the men as well as as the women, but in on in different ways. And I'm was born in in Britain in the UK, and I can see especially how that harmed the Anglo-Saxon tradition harmed men, and because what it was doing when it was boiled down was it was creating the cannon fodder of empire, the sort of the built inbuilt unquestioned goal was to raise boys who would do what they were told and go and die in wars, and so you sure as hell didn't want anyone crying or getting in touch with their feelings in in that, and. I've got a story. I like stories, Mo, if, if it's all right. We all love them. They stay, yeah. yeah, they stay in the mind. That this was my, when my dad was dying, when he was in hospital for the last couple of weeks of his life, I, I was lucky. I was able to go and, and hang out at the hospital with him. I went over to Melbourne and towards the last couple of days, even was able to sleep in his room. And one day he was in and out of morphine affected kind of sleep. And, but one day he came out of wide awake and he sort of, and my dad knew what I did for a living. And he knew I was on about all this fathering stuff. And he said, I want to tell you this story. He said, when you were born, 
and my ears kind of pricked up, you know, this is mm-hmm. interesting, you know. He said, when you were born and when we got you home, and this was in a little little town in Yorkshire on the Yorkshire coast in England, very industrial kind of background place. He said, your mum was a bit tired. And so I thought I'll take you for a walk in the pram. And in those days, they had prams, which were like a big thing on big wheels. And so my dad put this little two-day-old baby in the pram and took me round the corner into the into the, what's called the high street, which was where the shops were. And it's cold and windy sort of a place. And, and he's pushing the pram with this little baby in there. And he said people were staring at him and they were kind of frowning at him. And then some children, kind of street urchins, like street kids, started running behind him and jeering at him, calling out things at him. And when my dad was telling me this, he, he suddenly, he sort of paused and his eyes kind of went a bit moist. And I wasn't sure if it was the story or if it was the morphine and he was just needing to catch his breath or something, or even if he'd stopped the story. So I said to him, Dad, what were they saying? And he said, they were calling out, your dad's your mum. And it was like this chant they were making. And he suddenly clicked that the reason that passers-by were scowling at him and the kids were making fun of him was that men in those times didn't push prams. That was not seen and it was not even approved of. And my dad was a very tall, thin man and he was very shy. And he said, I just couldn't handle it. And I went off down a side street and went back home again. And when he told me that, I just had this picture of millions of men in the, this was in the 1950s, millions of dads who in their hearts really wanted to be hands-on, you know, had that same experience that you described of, I, I love this little child, you know, I really want to cherish them close up, not just from a distance. And that was absolutely frowned on and they just couldn't do it. They weren't, weren't permitted to do it. And sometimes even the women were like gatekeepers of that and said, no, you'll drop them or you won't do it right and give it back, you know, because we are clumsy and, and you know, we don't always get it right. And so, so millions of men in the 1950s and 60s were, were prevented from following their hearts. And, and I was really glad to have had that conversation because it was like my dad was saying, look, I really tried. And he was a good dad. He played with us. He never hit us. He was much more, he was a working class man. And so he was, he would put you on his, on his knee and play horses riding on his knee and things like that. He was a lovely dad in, in so many ways. And I was glad to, that we finished up in a place where he knew that I loved him and, and I knew that he loved me. And because he died just, you know, days after that, and we hadn't always had it so smooth, but one of my books, which is called Manhood, this idea of fixing it with your dad and repairing the the father wound on a personal basis in your own family can be something that really opens the river again to flow. I'm really happy to see your face taking that on. Oh, I, I adored my dad. So we had a very interesting dynamic because my mom was the academic, the disciplinary, the one that really gave us 
rigor if you want and my dad was brilliant he was a genius like he was a brilliant engineer brilliant mathematician which to me were things that i loved as much as other kids loved music or football right and maybe perhaps like you said because to every child your dad is your superman right but the thing about my dad was that he was the love in the house which was very 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 different so mom mom was always loving but she was always like you know focused on achievement my dad was the unconditional love and i remember vividly i was reasonably religious when i was young still am probably but i remember vividly in one night in ramadan uh, ramadan is that month in the islamic calendar where you know it's a little more connected to your spirituality and so on we fast and we pray and so on and so my dad wanted to spend time to speak to me i must have been 18 because i was driving at the time and I wanted to go to prayers. And so I said, we used to call him Ali Bey, which is really interesting, like Master Ali. Anyway, so we, you know, I said, Ali Bey, I don't have the time for this. I really have to go catch my prayers. And then I found myself during the prayer weeping, weeping, like literally like a child. How can I prioritize this prayer to being with my dad who's asking to spend time with me, right? And so I, I literally left mid-prayer, I drove back and I sat at his feet and I said, I'm so sorry that I prioritized something else. What did you want to talk about? And I remember vividly, this was such a connecting experience because basically I was now almost a man, right? I was driving alone. I had my priority in my friendships. I, you know, I was probably even going to university by then or whatever. And that moment reminded me of everything that mattered really which is this man tried his absolute best to be close. And I think that really is a big part of what made me who I am. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And I think by fixing those teen year thoughts of he doesn't matter, I'm independent now, and going back to know we're friends, I think that made all of the difference to my life. Oh, that's really lovely. It's kind of a because when I, when I was looking you up on Google to find out about your ideas, Mo, as, as a preparation for talking to you, and it was very clear that you were a person who was a person of the brain. Oh, yes, very much so. yes. That's what you see. Oh, if you yes. come in my heart, you'll know that this is not true. <laughs> <laughs> and and so so it doesn't seem that way when I talk to you in person. And so, so it's very clear that you managed to get heart and mind activated fully. And, and that your dad, brilliant, that your dad was a heart person and um, yeah. to, to give you that gift. A very strange mix, actually, because he was the definition almost of a, a savant, a brilliant mathematician, but full of heart, like incredibly loving, so unconditional, so giving. And I tend to believe, honestly, that probably as per your book, you know, Raising Boys, which I think is is an absolute must, by the way, for everyone listening. If you have children, you have to read Raising Boys and Raising Girls. But, you know, in Raising Boys, I think one of the most eye-opening bits for me was the idea that the first six years of a boy's life, unlike what we most think about, is about love. It's about enabling the child, which is a boy. You're supposed to teach them how to destroy things and kick others. You know, most people think that way. But no, you're saying it's about love. Yes, I, that brought to mind a, another example, Mo, which was about five or six years ago, I was in a room with 200 women, and I think they were mothers mostly, and, and what I said to them was, I said, I want you to design 
the perfect man. Um, let's take half an hour and we'll design the perfect man. And if you've ever been in a room full of only women, they've, they're very ribald and they're very kind of, <laughs> um, you know, hilarious, a bit, bit hard to control, to give up on control. <laughs> and, and so the first comments that came were, were quite unmentionable and I could never recount them. But, but after about the first minute, <laughs> they began to call out words, which I, like any good seminar person, wrote them on a whiteboard. And the words were things like, you know, um, kind and reliable and loving and sensitive and trustworthy. And we got about 50 words on the board. And I was doing this trick because I knew what they were probably going to say. And I was putting the words on two sides of the board. And I said, can you notice what's happening here? On one side, all the words were heart words. They were kind, caring, sensitive, tender, open-hearted, which women really love in a man. And on the other side were trustworthy, reliable, keep their agreements, you can count on them, will hold in when things are tough and won't just run away. And so it turned out that true masculinity, and this was from a woman's point of view, but see whether the men listening to this agree or not, real masculinity is having those two qualities, heart and backbone. <laughs> backbone, I like that. Backbone, yeah, it's, that's to me is a much better word than being, you know, kind of strong or tough or anything, because backbone means that when, when a family goes through a rough time, when they're short of money, when maybe the mother in the family is has got some health challenges, or one of the kiddies is born with a disability, or something is going badly, the man doesn't run away, and he doesn't take the easy path. Some young woman comes after him, he. He, he doesn't grab that ice cream just because it's been offered. And so you can be as kind as anything, but if you haven't got backbone, it's no good. But if you if you have often the, the 50s men, the older style of man had a lot of backbone, but no heart. And so so in the British tradition, it was, and I think the American tradition too, it was the thing of your dad was like a log of wood. It'd be like this log of wood sitting at the end of the table, you know, and he'd kind of mutter various things. But the kids had no sense of him as a human being. And in the sort of Middle Eastern cultures, yeah, of course, I, do, I have no no knowledge of that. Whether that's the case, whether your family was Absolutely. an exception or, or not, mm, that, that you would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, everywhere in the Latin culture, in the Japanese culture, in you know, I think most of the of the generations, even until today, I probably say, you know, the man is supposed to be theoretically good cop bad cop the man is supposed to be the bad cop is supposed to be the tough part of the family you know what's really interesting steve is i so i actually do the similar exercise i normally say relationships are the third biggest reason for unhappiness in today's modern world and and so i get a lot of questions either from friends or from others from followers on on relationships and i ask women to do exactly that i say look you know, there is a big part of the success of the relationship that depends on how you choose. So do you know what you want to choose? And as you rightly said, you know, they start with a list of physical features, you know, whatever they are, colors of eyes or whatever else. And then they go into material features like rich, successful, and so on and so forth. And I let them go. And then eventually I say, but let's say we have 40 features here. If God was ungenerous today and promised you only 39 of them, which would you drop? 
if he promised you 38, which would you drop? Okay, and I go through that exercise. It takes a long time, an hour sometimes. And basically, eventually, you'll realize that most women I've ever spoken to about what they want in a man, when they have to prioritize, the top five will always be hard features. Kind, loving, touches me, hugs me. All of those things, interestingly, are more important to a woman than having a lot of money or being able to to pay for a vacation or whatever. And that's the opposite of what most men are taught, you know, as dating yes. advice or, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's really, really interesting when you think about it this way, that we're so misled about it. Yes, that's right. And because I was a family therapist for a long time, the dynamics of if you have one partner who's the heart and one who's the backbone, supposedly, it actually goes quite badly Yeah. because what will happen is that, for instance, if it's the dad, it will be kind of, he'll get harsher because he thinks that's what's needed. And yeah. his wife will end up being softer to make up for how harsh the dad is. And so you get this kind of dad sends you to your bedroom without any dinner and your mum sneaks in with cake, you know, when she's when he's not looking. Yeah. <laughs> and and the pro- the problem for the kids then Confusion. is that they don't see they don't see the balance and they don't see mm. the, the combination in one person. And so for instance, I, I have Asperger's syndrome. And so I was very much a person who had to operate in a kind of logical framework and, and People with Asperger's will tend to marry someone. If they're lucky, they marry someone who is very warm-hearted. And and then they they really go well. But the trouble is, is that you're drawing on the emotions of your partner instead of having your own. And eventually that sucks the energy out of of things. It, It drains, literally drains your partner. And whereas if you take responsibility for your own emotions, then your partner can come back into their backbone as well, because the aim in a relationship is to produce two whole people, not two halves, not two half people. And we do most of our growing after we marry. And so you have to kind of, if you're a, a dad listening to Mo's podcast here, notice the little edges of feeling that you're having, the way to get your heart reactivated. I've just got an, a new book, which has taken about many, many years. Probably it's the book of my lifetime. It's called Fully Human. I know, and, I was going yeah, to, and, uh, coming to that, yeah. Yeah, and what what that is, the message of it is that if you go down into your body, you can feel the little beginnings of feelings and they happen as a sensation, sort of down in your belly quite often, around your heart, in your guts. And so, for instance, if a dad is with his son and and let's imagine the son's might be only five or six years old and his best friend is moving to a different city or something and he's going to lose his lifelong best friend and your little boy is starting to cry you know waving goodbye to his friend forever if that dad is in touch with himself he'll remember that yeah i remember being sad when i was five you know it's pretty hard and he'll go he'll sort of go a bit closer to his son and put his arm around his son and he'll say you've got a good heart, you know, you, it's really sad. You love your friend. And the little boy will kind of snuggle into that hug and feel like it's okay to feel this way. You know, I can, when dad hugs me, the tears can just flow. It's all right. And his grieving journey is going on its way. But let's imagine that if that dad had been in a war and seen his friends killed and had had to clamp down on grief, 
the little touches of sadness in his son will trigger that all of that volcano that he's been sitting on. And he'll probably sort of best case scenario will say to his, his son, will never, never mind, let's go and get an ice cream, you know, divert away and Charlie Phillips and or toughen up, there's nothing to cry about. Yes, you know, slaps yeah. him around or something. Very often, much more often the case. And that boy will be set on the road to being an emotional cripple and to being like his dad. And so we've done a lot of work and, you know, I work with men's groups where the amount of emotion is just unbelievable. And it's from years and years of holding it in. If anyone ever tells me men are not emotional, I just think, you know, you should see. What, <laughs> what are you talking about? Where have you been living? Sadly, the world makes it look that way, that men are not emotional. But uh, I'd say men are not allowed, sadly, by the modern society. There, there's a point that you brought that I cannot pass. The point of Asperger's, because I tend to believe I was also very much on that spectrum, if you want. And talking to you, I feel so close. And I have to, I have to sort of ask you about your experience. I, I remember vividly in my very young years where I had to sort of use my intellect to become human. Did you ever go through that experience? Oh, this is really great to hear, Mo, because that's exactly what happened. And it's actually, it is really the, the only way to do it for those of us who are somewhere on that spectrum. Our strength is in understanding, you know, cognitively mapping out, because neurotypical people often barely give a thought to their relationship skills. They just exactly yeah. you know, just bumble along. And, and, and because a lot of that is intuitive or it's just taken in, they mostly get it right, but if they don't get it right, they, they're clueless. And, and whereas the two things that I think really helped me was I had some teachers and some youth work kind of people who, who could see that I had a good heart. And so they just kind of carried me through those worst times of the teenage years where I don't know if this was, I can't imagine you ever being in this situation, Mo, but I just couldn't, I could not do conversation when the 16, 17-year-old friends were talking to girls and talking to each other. And I could see this was the thing to do, that, you know, these, these conversations were just looked like a lot of fun. But when I went to do it, I, it just always went clang. It was like in English called a clanger. And I just kind of began to wander like a ghost through life. And I was so lucky that, first of all, people looked out for me and, and then... I studied psychology, which was quite quite helpful, and you learn stuff. Yeah, you know that absolutely conversation is like a game of table tennis or a game of tennis. You you hit the ball and then you let it come back. <laughs> you don't just keep hitting. And those of us on the spectrum have this tendency: we we know something isn't right, so we panic, <laughs> so we just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> yeah, and that there's things called emotions, and people show it on their face, and keep an eye on that. That's important. Yeah. So there's the technology of relating and, and after a while you just get it, but it's hard work. And so even to this day, you know, after this podcast, I'll have to go and have a lie down, you know, because. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. But before we go there, I, I think we need to take a break and break this conversation into two parts. So I'll end part one here now, and then we come back in part two. Probably I advise you not to stop if you have the time, continue to listen. We're going to be talking about raising girls, about uh, some of the risks of 
the modern world, modern society, social media, about the future of our kids. And we're going to be talking about the biggest question of all. Are we boys and girls or should we raise children to be more free to identify? And I think you will enjoy the second part of my conversation very much with Steve. So uh, join us in part two.